0: Welcome to the Back to Square Quan podcast with your host, Chong
1: and Kedrick. This is a podcast where we will have conversations about training, nutrition, and philosophy, taking you back to square one. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. All right, so uh, welcome back to another episode of the Back to Square Quan podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. I think... uh, very special and guest to talk about a very important topic since uh, the pandemic or the endemic COVID would be with us for a while, I guess. Uh, so I've invited uh, Dr. Jay Butchaya. Am I pronouncing a name right? Hopefully, you're not butchering it. Uh, to 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 speak upon uh, matters on all things related to COVID. So before we start, uh, Dr. Jay, uh, can you share with us a little bit in, about your your background i think just drop some uh, credentials because first of all none neither chung nor myself are doctors uh we we just like well <laughs> kedrick's on kedrick's on the way yeah but i'm i'm only doing like exercise science so i'm not the useful kind of doctor uh especially during this 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 time so <laughs> <No doctor>. yeah <laughs>
2: I mean, the medicine has not had the very best pandemic, I have to say, but I, so I I, uh, I am a professor of medicine uh, at, at Stanford University. Actually, now I'm officially a professor of health policy for 20 years, I was a professor of medicine. Um, I have an MD and a PhD in economics. I do research full time. Um, and for the last 20 years, my research has focused on uh, epidemiological issues, health policy issues uh a whole range of them but including especially infectious disease epidemiology uh published on back, back since hiv uh, was my thing one of my very first published papers um uh and, and i've been working on infectious disease epidemiology for forever now and certainly during the pandemic i've worked a lot on on COVID epidemiology and COVID policy
1: yeah that's uh that's great because i think that you know like uh it's important, I guess, for people to know that you've at least uh worked in the field. Because uh apparently nowadays only if you are a virologist, immunologist, or whatever, you, you apparently you can't comment on things like that, even though you know you can't even have a conversation about it. So it's good to know that at, between the three of us, at least one of us has uh, the I necessary some credentials. Experience. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: well I, th- I think actually that's that is a major problem in the discourse that's happened during the pandemic. Uh I mean the issue is this, is that is that Uh, This pandemic and the policies we adopted are not simply a matter of epidemiology, virology, or immunology. I mean, those are important fields that that have important things to say about the right thing to do during the pandemic, but they are not the whole of what the pandemic policy entails. The, the, The policies we've adopted have affected the lives of every single person on the face of the earth in one way or another. Uh, And the the expertise needed to understand that includes people who study economics, people who study sociology, people who study psychology, people who study uh, psychiatry, people who study uh, you know uh, you name the field if it touches uh, if it if it it, it, the 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 it's the the field has been touched by this pandemic in some way and to exclude all of those people all that expertise from the discussion has led to a, a impoverished discussion about the right policy for COVID.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah, and so I do have a question for you, doctor. Because so obviously, when Kedrick told me, I was uh, I was astounded. I was very excited to get on this uh, this conversation. Of course, uh, being uh, you know a professor yourself and being in so heavily involved in so many fields, obviously one of the co-authors of you know the Great Barrington Declaration, and I guess was that um, was it? Did it come to that point? Um, you know, throughout the pandemic and stuff like that, when you and the co-authors kind of realized that a lot of the policymakers that have, you know, that have those policies in place weren't really considering the other sort of like things that you've mentioned, right? Psychology, socioeconomics, um, you know, and and all that kind of stuff. And they were really, really just sort of focusing on how can we get rid of this virus rather than thinking of humans in general.
2: I mean, that that I think is exactly right it's it's what's happened is that the people that have been in charge of the, the COVID policy have been utterly blind to the harms the policy in, in, entails. Uh, and uh, they, they, they made a, they made it like, they like prided themselves on the blindness. What they've said is that uh, all that, ma- that, that it, you know, uh, if, if you, if you um, can get rid of COVID uh, if it doesn't matter any of the other things that happen as a result, because if one life saved from COVID is worth, what an infinity of lives saved from depression. Um, I, I, I think that the, the, the this it's essentially a kind of moral blindness, right? So uh, uh, that's fueled by the, both by the fear of COVID and also the sort of this disciplinary focus of, of the, the the few people that are in charge of COVID policy, right? So they they um, they have made a virtue of this blindness to say uh, and, and used it to exclude uh, from the conversation for instance, the tens of millions of people that have been thrown into poverty as a result of the COVID, the COVID policies the world has adopted. The, the hundreds of thousands of children dead from starvation as a consequence of the COVID policies that we've adopted. Um, when we talk about, uh, about these harms, they're not simply harms that are like economic in nature, that like, you know, the, 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 the kind of moral calculus people have been have pushed through the whole epidemic is, well, we're worried about lives on COVID and or you're just worried about trivial economic things. Well, it's not trivial economic things when you make one or two dollars a day of income, and uh, in, and in, you live in a poor country, you, you get thrown into starvation. You, it is, it's the life of your child that 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 gets harmed. That that, that you can't send them to school. Um, you know, uh, the school is closed for two years. You know, it's these are consequences that last a lifetime. Uh, often resulting in death or 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 uh, and, and other very very bad outcomes. On the other side, the, the the conversation about COVID policy has always been lives on one side and lives on the other, not lives versus money. And I think a lot of the harm has been come from that blindness.
1: Mm, yeah. So the central premise of like the Great Barrington Declaration focus is. On, like focus protection so i think we will talk a little bit about that but i do think it's very important to like talk about your initial work on the, the pandemic right so when you talk about like the serial prevalence study at the start so can you maybe share a little bit about that and uh, of course uh, share with our listeners what does what does serial prevalence mean because uh, we our listeners are quite like uh just We're happy uh, to talk yeah, so
2: so yeah. so basically the, the the uh in the early days of the pandemic. We didn't really know. Let's let's say in February, January, February of 2020, we didn't really know what the death rate of the, the virus. Now we thought we did because what what came out of places like China and Italy were uh, in uh, the number of people that died apparently with COVID uh, with COVID, and um, and and the denominator was the number of people that presented to public health authorities as having COVID. Right. So this was before the PCR tests. So they would do like lung X rays or if you check for symptoms. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the estimates of the death rate was very simple. How many people resented that looked like they had COVID in the denominator? and the numerator, how many people died uh, of that set? And you get a, you get a death rate that the, the World Health Organization reported something like 3 4% in the early days of the pandemic. That is an incredibly deadly infectious disease. Uh, it panicked the world. The problem with that number is that a very large number of people had COVID and didn't know it because the, the disease presents with a very wide range of clinical presentations, 30, 40%. I'm, I'm not sure exactly the number, there's some different estimates in the literature, uh, but have, have COVID and do not have any symptoms at all ever. Like, like it's so they've had the virus, they have antibodies in their bloodstream that indicate that the virus, that they were infected with the virus, but they never, they can recall no symptoms or maybe they're so mild. They don't remember them. Um uh most most people who had COVID have have some symptoms, you know, that including fever, cough, some with a loss of sense of sense uh, taste and smell, but they recover. Um, never go to the hospital. A, a s- small fraction of the patients end up going to the hospital because they have a severe viral pneumonia. And, and unfortunately, some of those also die from that severe viral pneumonia. In the early years of the pandemic, always the attention was focused on sort of that small fraction of patients. And all these other patients that had had the disease, recovered completely, but never came to the attention of public health, uh, were, were not included in that death rate estimate, the death rate estimate that panicked the world. Um, it, I'd done some work in H1N1, in the 2009 epidemic. A, a similar thing happened there, actually, uh, in those early days of the pandemic, in 2000, 2009 um, of the H1N1 pandemic, there were similarly high death rate estimates put out by the World Health Organization and other, uh, other medical bodies about the death rate from H1N1. Uh, what happened was that a whole series of studies were done of the, the levels of, of, of the, for the presence of antibodies in the population at large to the H1N1 flu. So antibodies in, a, in someone's blood uh, that's specific to H1N1 provides evidence that you were infected and recovered, right? Um, and it when, the, when these seropre, that's those are called seroprevalence studies, sero meaning blood, prevalence meaning, you know, how, how common is it in the population? Seroprevalence in this case is, was, in that case was seroprevalence of antibodies in the blood indicating H1N1. Um, now, the, uh, the serial prevalence studies have been, that I've focused on now, since COVID, has been on uh, the presence of antibodies in the blood indicating COVID infection. Uh, and when, in H1N1, when those serious prevalence studies were done, it turned out there were a hundred or more infections for every case that had shown up, and so the death rate was actually something like one in ten thousand, not one in one in a hundred. Mm-hmm. Two orders of magnitude difference. Uh, now, you know, the, the, you can, there's some fight over exactly the number, but that's, I'll just give you a sense of the order of magnitude, a hundred times more. Uh, and so when, the, in the early days of the epidemic, I had a similar idea that, well, maybe this disease, which spreads off, looks like it spreads off a lot like H1, like, uh, like the flu, it, it spreads via aerosolization. Uh, we don't know the death rate. Uh, there's, you could do some certain calculations based on like the diamond princess cruise or the numbers out of China um, and, and, and get some guesses, but we, until you have these seroprevalence studies, you cannot know the true death rate from this. So I, I helped run as a senior author uh, the, uh, the, the Santa, uh, a seroprevalence study in Santa Clara County, which I think was the first one with a big, uh, that made a big splash. Um, and then another one in LA County. Where what we found was that it wasn't a hundred times. It was, more like, it was more like thirty or forty forty or fifty times more infections than cases. The, the, inf- the infection fatality rate turned out to be in Santa Clara County and in LA County uh, in April of 2020, uh, two out of a thousand, rather than two out of a hundred. Right, about, about ten times difference, in, or three, you know, so more than ten times difference in the uh, in the actual infection fatality rate. Uh, now we we looked at a community dwelling population the infection fatality rate in nursing homes is higher so we we didn't sh- we didn't do a study of, the, of that and that's so, so uh, you know if you do the if you do the estimates in the US maybe the infection fatality rate might be 0.4% 0.5% something on that order um, if you include the 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 nursing home population worldwide there's now a whole hundred of these studies And the infection fatality rate turns out to be about 0.2% worldwide, the median infection fatality rate in 2020 from uh, it before the, before the vaccines.
1: Yep. So uh, just to kind of clarify, essentially infection fatality rate is how many people die, how many people that got infected died, right? So, uh, and this studies are. Prior to the vaccines, obviously with uh with Delta uh uh and like the vaccines, things get murkier. But now with the yeah. latest like Omicron, I I mean just based on what you're saying, it seems that the infect infection fatality rate would drop because more people are getting infected, but less people are dying. So with the value of like 1.3 actually dropped because obviously with vaccines, previous natural immunity uh from which we will talk about. Do you think that? The infection fatality rate will go up or will it go down?
2: I mean, with the vaccines, it goes down, right? The vaccines yep. do, do an excellent job of protecting people against severe disease and uh, including death. So, uh, the infection fatality rate now, in a especially in heavily vaccinated populations, is going to be, you know, uh, if the vaccine is ninety percent effective, then the infection fatality rate will be ten times low, lower than the what we measured in the in the early days of the pandemic without mm. the vaccine.
1: Yep. So I guess it brings us to the next conversation, right? On like focus protection. So with these people that are actually uh, like dying from COVID, there there is like a particular like characteristics, right? Uh, A large majority of them would be uh, either have one or more uh, comorbidities and they're probably like age. Age is a factor as well. So can you maybe share... A little bit about that because people was like oh yeah you know like uh infection this is the infection fatality rate right the ifr right and they'll be like oh if it's one percent you know i may still have a chance because but what they don't realize is that if you're young and healthy right the chances are actually much lower so maybe can you share what are some certain general characteristics that this uh that people tend to uh, get either severe illness or death from uh, getting this virus
2: yeah. So the single most important risk factor is age uh, by far. It's not close. So so just to give you some sense of this, uh, every seven years of age that you get older, it, it doubles the infection fatality rate. Every seven years of age doubles it. So uh, at 50 years old, it's like 0.2% infection fatality rate, 99.8% survival. At, fif- at 57, then it'll be something like 0.4, at 64, it'll be 0.8 and, and so on. And then it halves on the way down. So 43-year-olds will be 0.1%. Um, that is the most important thing. Now, comorbidities do increase your uh, infection fatality rate. So I think obesity, for instance, I think increases it, maybe doubles it. Um, so those are important as well. But, in, but the key factor is age. There's almost a thousandfold difference. Again, this is before the vaccine in and actually even with the vaccine, in the infection fatality rate of this disease from the oldest to youngest. Uh, the, there, this is a disease that really, really harms older people and is much less fatal in younger people. Um, and uh, and that so that and that's like in, in some sense it's like it's it's much steeper than the flu. The flu is more deadly to, to young people, relatively speaking, uh especially children. Um, can, or can, can be, depending on the t- on, on the particular strain. Um, and, the, uh, and for older people, it's, 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 it, it can be deadly, of course. It, it's more deadly for older people. The, the flu is more deadly for older people, but the slope is much steeper for COVID. Um, 80%, something like that, 70, 80% of the deaths uh, in the United States from COVID have happened to people that are over 65.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so that I, i've gotten um this actually just literally just popped into my head because we were obviously comparing sort of like um COVID versus sort of like the flu um and i'm pretty sure it's sort of the same in in, in the states to new zealand where when winter rolls around you get your flu shot um and it is interesting on what you said because um generally flu tends to be more deadly to young the younger generation kids predominantly. And- well, I mean it's it's it,
2: it, flu does kill older people more than young people. It's just that the slope is steeper for COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I think like that there's some age below which the flu is is more deadly, and, and above kind of which get, like, COVID is more deadly. Ah, yeah, gotcha. Like there's a crossing point. Uh, I mean, if, certainly for children, I think. The flu is less is is more deadly than COVID, mm. and certainly for old people, COVID is way more deadly than the flu.
0: Mm. Yeah, so that's interesting. So on that note, um, I guess in regards to you know the, the future and sort of like into the great unknown, as people would say, um, it is obviously very common these days to sort of like get flu vaccinations. You know, you get your annual sort of like flu vaccinations, and there's this, I guess, this whole you know this whole very big conversation with like you know anti-vax and they don't want to get the covid vaccination and we've got a group that like will get the covid vaccination just because um i guess in your opinion do you foresee going into um into the next decade or so highly likely covid being more of an endemic thing um would and and it having that opportunity or potential to develop multiple variants as it evolves as as all viruses do um would you think that covid vaccination would be like an, an annual thing um, as compared to something like an annual flu vaccination
2: well one of the things that's different about covid than the flu the flu uh, the way it mutates it it, uh, it, the the prior infection with the with a w- one variant of the flu that provides very very incomplete protection against future variants of the flu that provides some protection, not some some cross protection, but it's not it's 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 sort of insufficient, I think, um, and that's the argument for the annual flu vaccine. The, the the flu mutates in a particular way every year, and it's hard to predict. But uh, so, like for instance, in the Southern Hemisphere, the 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 flu uh, hits you all in your in your winter, our summer. Um, where, you know, I'm in, in California, um, and the flu vaccines that that are used in the Northern hemisphere are based on the variant that hits the Southern hemisphere during your, during your winter or summer. So they formulate it on that basis. And the, and the, 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 the way that the flu mutates it, the fact that you had the flu before doesn't necessarily protect you a ton against having the, 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 uh, the, against the next variant of the flu. It'll de- And it depends on how severe it is. It varies from, from year to year. And so that's why that's the argument for the, the annual flu vaccine. Um, COVID is different in that sense. COVID prior infection provides very strong immunity against future, future, uh, future infections. It's in, in the same way that you get immunity from other coronaviruses. Now, the immunity doesn't mean you won't get reinfected. You can get still reinfected. Uh, I think it, at, before Omicron, the reinfection rate was something like 1%, 0.3% to 1% one year after infection. Uh, Omicron clearly evades, uh, cl- clearly evades both natural immunity and also vaccine immunity. A lot of people that are vaccinated and a lot of people who were previously infected are getting reinfected with Omicron. Um, but what both the vaccines do and also natural, or the pre- COVID recovery does, is it provides you protection against severe disease if you get reinfected. So you'll get something much closer to a cold the second time than the first time. Um mm-hmm. So it'll be it'll now it's hard to say exactly because this is this is a novel virus and who knows it'll if it it, it might it might re- require a a, a a new vaccination uh you know a, a, from time to time depending on what's 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 how it evolves um, but my best guess is that it will become uh because if you have a population that that's well protected immunologically either by the vaccine or by natural infection and recovery from natural infection. Um, or both, the, the the experience of reinfection will be much milder. And so why take the risk of a vaccine if you're just protecting against a cold? We don't have uh, vaccines against a common cold. It wouldn't make sense. You'd rather just get the cold than the, than the side effects of the vaccine, which are very similar to the cold. Um, I think that that's the long run of COVID, not annual vaccination time and time again, but just an, like reinfection every few years uh, with it where, where it's like a minor inconvenience because you've had this recovery from it in the past or because you've been vaccinated in the past.
1: Mm. So just to continue off a point that you mentioned just now, so vaccines and previous immunity, uh, they do not do a good job, right? Obviously, they reduce in a small percentage and obviously less with Omicron to prevent reinfection, which means that it does a a poor job when it comes to so-called, oh, when people say, I take the vaccine so that it protects people around me and like prevents or stops transmission right but what the vaccine does is that it protects the person who takes it right the main benefit is for the actually the person who takes the vaccine so i think that's kind of like uh important to clarify because uh in the mainstream media people will always be focusing on uh antibodies they say oh cool antibodies right uh against delta after i mean based on like the original like wild type strainer it's like cool right uh Five to six months, and then with Omicron is half that time. That's why we need to take another booster. But those are just measuring like certain antibody titers, right? Uh, and there is a difference between like your immunity, like right? your memory T cell, B cells, versus those antibodies. Can you like maybe shed some uh, shed some light upon like those the, those differences and why it's actually important for people to conceptualize uh, in that manner rather than focusing on just either one or the other? I mean, I
2: think antibodies are a, what would, in medicine we call a surrogate endpoint, right? So you can have antibodies and that provides some evidence that you're protected against the disease in this case, because the, the, the antibodies actually are, are, if they're specific to COVID, can be active uh, in protecting you against the disease. But you can also not have antibodies and still be protected against the disease because there are other mechanisms in your immune system. Uh, immune system to protect you against disease that are beyond simply just antibodies, uh, T cells and B cells, uh, m- a, whole, a whole range of other, other. so, so, so like the antibodies are, are antibodies are only one component of the immune protection you get in immunology. Um, so that ju- the fact that it's present or not present is not the relevant question. The relevant question is, what does clinical disease look like for someone who's had disease and recovered versus someone who hasn't? What does clinical disease look like for someone who's vaccinated than someone who hasn't? Right? That's the relevant question. And um, there, the evidence is, is abundantly clear. Right, There's a huge amount of evidence from around the world that COVID recovery provides very, very strong protection against severe disease. With Omicron, it now, I think, doesn't provide protection against getting infected again. Um, but if you get infected, it's likely to be mild, especially Omicron by itself, it seems like it's 10 times less deadly than the previous variant. Um, so it's mild on top of mild, right? So it's times, 10 times less because you're previously infected and protected by your immune system, and then 10 times less deadly because it's Omicron. Um, on the, on the same, by the same token, the fact that antibodies wane after you get the vaccine is not evidence that you're not protected against severe disease you can get infected again. Absolutely. Even if you're vaccinated, I, I personally was vaccinated in April of 2021 and got COVID in, in with Delta in August of 2021. Um, and, you know, it, it's, I didn't, I wasn't hospitalized. I mean, it, it, I had a, uh, uh, I mean, it wasn't pleasant, but it wasn't, you know, it, it didn't, <laughs> I'm still here. Right. Um, so I, I, I think um, I think that the uh, there's a, a popular misconception both about how to tell if you're protected. If you're vaccinated or recovered, you're protected. And the nature of that protection. The protection, it doesn't fail against the thing we all all mostly care about. The thing we mostly care about isn't, am I going to get sick? The the thing we mostly care about is, am I going to die from this? Am I going to be hospitalized from this? Am I going to be permanently damaged by this? And both the vaccines and natural immunity protect against those bad outcomes, even if it doesn't protect against uh, getting infected.
1: Yep. Yeah. So I think that's like a very like important distinction because you know even in New Zealand people always uh, just little uh, kind of like backgrounds. Then New Zealand today we just had two our first two Omicron cases in the community, and obviously people are like freaking out. And the message from like uh, the Prime Minister or on the media is like two doses of vaccines protect against Delta, but they don't do well against Omicron. So go out and get your boosters. And I don't think that this is, uh, this is not to chastise uh, our prime minister, but that is generally the mainstream uh, message, right? This is what people say. So I think you mentioning the distinction between actual protection is very important because uh, when you talk about uh, this virus being sort of like, it affects life from a multifaceted approach, right? It's not just the virus affecting someone's health uh, immediately from the virus. You also have things like mental health, uh, you know, which like lockdown oh, places.
2: Like how, like how much time have you spent in lockdown over the last two years?
0: Like uh, what but fraction I, of your I, life?
1: I can actually speak very clearly to this because I, uh, a little bit of oh, yeah, <laughs> background is that I'm, uh, I'm from Malaysia. So I'm in, I mean, Chong and I were from Malaysia, but I came here uh, much later to, to New Zealand to do my PhD. And so I actually count the months because the days, the months you spend in lockdown, I can technically apply for like a leave, right? Uh, so, uh in total, I would say probably um close to 10 months in total. 10 months
2: in lockdown out of two years. Uh I mean it's uh it's a remarkably large fraction of your life spent spent basically not being allowed to live your life. Yep. In mm-hmm. pursuit of a policy where they to protect you from a virus that you're going to get anyways. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I I think I think it's and and it's not just a policy that that uh, that's benign. Right. In the United States, the CDC in July of 2020 did a survey of the United States and found that one in four young adults, people your age, seriously considered suicide. The level of depression and anxiety has skyrocketed everywhere where there's a lot of extended lockdown. And and imagine the like, you know, I just imagine living under this because I've lived in California. I don't have to imagine it. Um, the, the the continual uncertainty about can I live my life, right? is there going to be another lockdown? Can I can I go on with my business? Um, it's it is not uh, it's it's not a benign policy. It's a policy that has destroyed the lives of many 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 people, and um, and to to characterize it as the safe alternative. Is it, it? It's a mistake, a, a huge mistake, because you it, it essentially says all purpose in life is focused on the avoidance of this one single infectious disease, as opposed to the plural purposes that we all have in our lives. Um, and I think that that uh, t- t- I think we have to get away from thinking about lockdown as benign intervention. Anyone who's lived through it understands it is not a benign intervention.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because um so my yes uh, like Kedrick said, uh, I was also born in Malaysia, but my dad who is actually originally from Hong Kong, and Hong Kong has this big thing about um I'm sure you're very aware of like keeping it COVID zero, and so yeah. it um well my dad hasn't seen his mother for like years and neither have I, and she's at that age where she's way past ninety at this point. We don't really know when she's going to go. And it's, I think like policies like that makes it so hard because in order to get into Hong Kong, apparently you need to be quarantined in a room for close to three weeks. Now I don't know about you, but you know, three weeks is a long time in a room, you know, and, and not to mention if, you know, if my parents are still working and stuff like that, like three weeks is a big time. And it's so interesting because apparently there was a news, I think yesterday or this morning where um, they basically culled about. Two thousand hamsters in a um, in a in a pet shop because it was apparently um, related to to COVID, and um, it, it is it is quite scary to know that there are still I, I I guess countries in the world and you know to an extent New Zealand when 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 Delta hit as well still think that lockdowns is like the solution and they, you know as Kedrick said Omicron has just hit our shores today. Um the the from where I see it, it's like it's not, you know, like as long as people are taking care of themselves either from vaccination or recovery, um, it is gonna just be it is what it is, and putting people in lockdown. And I've seen friends and clients of mine who literally have, you know, lost houses and family and you know, just because of COVID. And um I, I guess my question there is, how would you how would you convince sort of these government bodies to kind of say like, look, COVID is here to stay. You know, it is much better for the world to live in a, you know, as it is and go on rather than just trying to get rid of the problem, which clearly isn't going to go away.
2: Well, I think the, the political problem in Australia and New Zealand are, is a, is a, is actually in some sense, it's like a, it's, it's a problem created by early success with that zero COVID policy. Right. So in the, uh, what happened is that COVID hit, in say february march of 2020 uh, in the in the developed world uh or it, it, or around the world outside of china um in during your summer and during our winter so during your low COVID season that's when the COVID pandemic hit um there wasn't very there were not very many cases in new zealand and australia at that point you you all have uh fewer Entry points, you have a few, a couple, some ports and, and, a, and, a, and a couple of international airports. It's, you, it's much easier to lock yourself away as an island nation than it is for a country like the United States to lock itself away, especially during COVID season, um, where the disease was already pretty widespread. I, tr- I mentioned that seroprevalence study um, th- that I did in April of 2020 in the United States, in LA, and and, and Santa Clara County in California. There was already three percent of the of the population, three or four percent of the population that had evidence of COVID, even in April of 2020. So by the time we we started a lockdown in March of 2020, it was already too late. They're already gotten to the point where there was no chance of getting to zero in the Northern Hemisphere during high COVID season, where the disease has spread outside of the knowledge of, of public health for a long for a while while before it, it, it the lockdown happened. Um, unlike the United States, unlike Europe, unlike South America, um, COVID didn't spread in New Zealand or in the early days. It hit during your summer, low COVID season, where, where spread is less likely. Um, the few cases you had, you isolated, and you got to zero. But you had to stay locked down. You had to keep the whole world out in order to stay there. So um, expats couldn't come home, even to see to bury their family members, right? Uh, you 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 had to like essentially. Uh, isolate yourself from the world. And even then you still had outbreaks of COVID because you can't actually isolate yourself entirely from the world. Um, you, the, the vaccines couldn't have been developed in Australia or New Zealand. The reason is simple. It's not because you all have don't have fantastic scientific facilities. The problem is in order to test the vaccines, you need places where there's lots of cases. You cannot run a randomized trial on a drug or on a vaccine in a place where there's no cases, you have to have the cases. So um, even the strategy to get out of it, which is use the vaccines, had to develop in a place where there was COVID. Mm. Uh, so you you have a, a, a completely unsustainable policy, and you're locked into this policy because. Now, the political fortunes of, of uh, Arden and, and uh, you know, Morrison and others, um, they, they, it depends on being, keeping COVID out. But you see the fruits of that in Australia. The, Australia has one of the very highest COVID case rates in the world right now. Uh, and that's during your summer, the low COVID season. Uh, it's because you have a population that that doesn't have doesn't have a lot of natural immunity. Now, fortunately, and thank God for this, both Australia and New Zealand have had enormously successful vaccination campaigns, mm. and it's also likely to be Omicron that spreads, not Delta. And as a result of that, you will have less death and harm from from the COVID spread, which is a huge, huge, hugely good thing. Um, I mean, it's, it's, so I think those two things together, um, I mean, ultimately I think Australia and New Zealand will have weathered the COVID storm better than much of the rest of the developed world. Um, but it's a, it's not, I don't believe a policy success. It's a, it's a, that can be replicated outside of, of, uh, of the, the circumstances we just talked about.
1: Yeah. So just to, uh, kind of like correct myself it's actually closer to eight months rather than 10 months because I don't want people to be like dude this guy's spreading misinformation. So I think it's like important for me <laughs> to clarify that. But in my justification, you know, they say lockdown make you lose track of time. So I'm just gonna blame it on the lockdown <laughs> making my awareness of time go bad. So it's Ketter, closer to-
2: eight, eight, eight months out of two out of uh what like 20 months is a lot of, is a huge fraction of your life. Yes. And and you're you are you you're you're young. I mean that is it's that's the other thing for ki- like if for the lockdowns have affected kids and young people the worst right? I mean, you should be living your life. I mean, I'm an, I'm an old guy. It's fine if, I, if I'm i a hermit and like, I don't see anyone except my family. You've I mean, done, you've done you, everything that you've done. I've done, do done with my, year, but, I, but I mean, young people should be living, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I'm um, sorry to cut you off, Kendrick. I was literally at the physio yesterday and um, I was talking to a physio and she said, um, she's just graduated, you know, she's working obviously. And she was saying a couple of her mates who got into physio in the first year of COVID had such a huge difference in terms of um, how the course was actually being delivered because they were still complied to do like a thousand hours of ten. I can't remember the exact number, but a lot of hours of like hands-on work, but because of COVID (laughs) they had to keep pushing it back. And it it was just such an interesting, well, not interesting. It was actually quite devastating to see actually um, the younger generation who you know for the kids especially who hey it's my first day of school you know sit down a computer it's like time to zoom for the next eight months you know it's uh it's it's rough.
2: Well, I th- I think the um I mean I don't I just it's it's just it's heartbreaking right so like the the lives of young people have been utterly overturned by this um uh, in um I don't know exactly the the policy regarding schools in in New Zealand but in California. Uh, for almost 18 months, especially people, kids going to public schools were not were, were not didn't have in person schooling. Uh, Stanford, where I where I'm a professor, uh, we we had classes remotely. Uh, a lot of a lot of like lab classes didn't happen really. Um, the inter- opportunities for students to interact with each other, which is where much of the the learning and the, and uh, and and sort of benefit of coming to a place like Stanford happens didn't happen. Uh no no very little time spent with professors. Zoom is not a substitute for actual in-person learning. Um, and the consequences are again, are not just simply just you know you're inconvenienced. Uh, so poor kids in California, especially, uh, had were more affected than richer kids because richer kids, that private schools were less impacted by school closures. Um, you, If you're richer, you could afford a tutor for your, your kids. Um, and the long-term consequences of that school disruption is, it, it turns out from the health economics literature, there's really strong evidence of this. Long-term consequences of school closures are things like shorter lives, less healthy lives, poorer lives. The ripple effects of the the even the short term school closures will will echo for a long time, and it will hurt the poor more than it will help will hurt the richer kids because they were more affected by it. This is an like enormous generator of inequality. These these lockdowns, the way the way they actually work.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I I completely get that as well. So not to mention like uh, so I think two years in the p- pandemic, right? Uh, Malaysia had like attrition rate of like twenty thousand people, like stop going to school that's twenty thousand kids like not going to school you know for in the span of two years and malaysia is a relatively uh, small countries like population of 30 million it's bigger than new zealand but it's not as big as the states i think california has more than 30 million people or something like that so yeah. i think it's very important to like factor all of this in uh the the whole uh the, the yeah the whole when it comes to policy it's just not just one aspect as you have mentioned so i do think that something to kind of like uh Dovetail in two words because you mentioned the successes of the vaccination campaign in Australia and New Zealand. Like, yeah, we are uh really like we have a high vaccination rate until uh prior to Monday, right? So uh this Monday, we opened eligibility of vaccination to five to eleven-year-old. So obviously the overall rate of eligible population would be lower because uh we opened to a new like subset of population. It was like 90 over percent. Uh, double vaccinated in New Zealand so that's really high you know uh, and now they are saying cool right uh, the reason why we are and you also mentioned preventing people from coming in to New Zealand right to like isolate and prevent now it's omicron from coming in They're, the premise they are doing this is one uh, we want the kids to get vaccinated right but, uh, and then second would be we want uh, everybody who is uh, vaccinated four months after to get their booster shots right so i kind of like want to talk about a little bit about the vaccines now uh so because we we we, we had like a brief overview of like COVID in general talking about lockdown so the next thing is like you know vaccination is a very important topic because you know we we have like i think a lot of people can be really unhappy with lockdowns but uh, and you probably have a little bit like larger consensus uh, but vaccinations can be a little bit uh, tricky. To, to navigate conversations like that. And you mentioned it yourself that you've been vaccinated, you've got COVID, uh, both Chung and myself, we've got vaccinated as well. So we are not like anti-vaxxers and, or anything like that. But I do think even the term anti-vaxxers is like very pejorative because it kind of implies that people do not have rational reasons to not get vaccinated, right? And I do think it's very important. So one big thing that uh, we, we want to talk about would be, because I think at the start of our conversation, you mentioned Omicron is very mild, like a flu. And then there's, uh, there are side effects of vaccine as well. So you have to like weigh it out, right? What the side effects from the vaccines are versus the side effect from getting the virus. So before I uh yeah let you talk about that, I just want to like clarify my position. My, my position is that for anyone who were to encounter COVID, right? It's always better to have for the first time, right? Obviously, encounter COVID for the first time. It's always better to have some some form of immunity than not right that's my position right and which means that most likely is from vaccination but obviously there are ways to 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 navigate those conversations so maybe you can share with us a little bit about vaccination uh uh, the benefits and the side effects also uh talking about whether these benefits and side effects apply to every single population uh, demographic the same way because we know from the literature it, it really doesn't right it definitely benefits the older people more because they have uh higher mortality rate from the virus. So maybe you can share a little bit about uh, that topic.
2: Uh, Sure. So so vaccination is a very important tool in protecting populations against COVID. But it doesn't protect populations against COVID in in the way many people think. It doesn't prevent disease spread. So as, as you said earlier, Kedrick, vaccination protects the person being vaccinated and only provides limited protection against disease spread. I think by two or three months, the protection against disease spread drops pretty sharply. And so the fact that uh, the New Zealand population is very well vaccinated is, is fantastic news for as far as like whether you're the, the, the New Zealand is going to experience a lot of deaths from COVID. But it, it will not protect New Zealand against getting a large outbreak of COVID when you open up and you maybe even even before you open up, you're going to get a large outbreak of COVID. It will happen. Um, and so it's just a matter of, of like time um, and like how draconian the lockdown is. So, so, uh, so that let, let's, so let, let's just focus then on the private benefits of, of vaccination, which are substantial. Uh, and, and Kendrick, I think you laid out the issues very well. If you are older, the, the harm from COVID is much higher in terms of the risk of severe disease. Right. So, uh, you know, if you're over the age of 70, I, th- I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 3 4 a 5% mortality risk if you get infected. Vaccination reduces that risk by tenfold, right? So it goes from, uh, you know, if you're if, uh, from a 2% mortality risk, if you're, say, 70, 75, I don't know, something on that order, uh, to 0.2%. It will save your life if you're vaccinated the first time, and you are absolutely right, Cedric, the first time you meet COVID is vital, especially if you're older, to have the vaccination on board to reduce the risk of bad outcomes. It's 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 just, it's so it's a public health priority for the life-saving, not for reducing disease spread. Um, now, vaccines, just like any medicine, have side effects. You're always in medicine trading off the benefits versus the side effects. You give medicines when it makes sense to do so. There's no medicine that has with no no possibility of side effects. You're always considering the benefits and the harms. And here, because the 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 risk that you're averting varies so differently across different people in the population, with age being the number one risk factor, um, it you're going to have different risk benefit risk risk benefit calculus. So for an older person, you're getting this huge benefit, reductions in this huge reduction in the possibility in the probability of, of bad outcomes if you were to get COVID. Um, there are outcomes from the vaccine that are that are documented in. Uh, so, for instance, there's a one in a million on that order risk of Guillain-Barré syndrome from the vaccines, from the mRNA vaccines. Tiny risk, tiny, tiny risk, much less important than the risk of if you get COVID of dying from it. But it's a fact. I mean, that's so one in a million people getting the, the vaccines are likely to get this terrible Guillain-Barré syndrome as a consequence of vaccination, not because of COVID. Um, and that's mainly an older population, I think, if, I, if I'm if I've seen the data right. Um, and for younger people, this vaccine. Um, let, let, so for older people, you trade off the benefit of the vaccine, which is substantial, against the the, the, the possible risk of harms, even harms that we don't know about yet, and, you, and it just prudentially, it makes sense to say you should get the vaccine. You, you have a certain large benefit and you have some uncertain harm that's probably quite low. It's worth it. The calculus is very different for younger people. For younger people, the vaccine is protecting against much smaller harm from COVID. Uh, the, the death rate from COVID is, is, is very, very low in five-year-olds, incredibly low, especially healthy five-year-olds. Uh, and so you 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 vaccinate a healthy five year old you get you're gaining almost no benefit because if they if a five year healthy five year old gets COVID they get they they it's 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 astronomically likely it's like one in million that they'll die from it. Uh, at the same time, you have some harms from the vaccine. Uh, young men, for instance, we know from the mRNA vaccines have a higher rate uh, have a side effect of, of myocarditis inflammation of your heart muscle, uh, or in pericarditis inflammation, of the, the, the sac that holds your heart. Um, and you know, sometimes that actually can, can result in death. Uh, now that's not common. Uh, so the myocarditis and pericarditis risk is something like on the order of, uh, there's some controversy in the literature, but let's say between one in 3000 and one in 10,000 patients, young men who get it will ha- will have it. Uh, most of the time they'll recover from it, but it can happen. It's not pleasant. Young men shouldn't be getting myocarditis. Um, so, uh, you, you, uh, you, you have that harm against the relatively small benefit and it's a much closer call whether you should be vaccinated. Some people are, and now it turns out that the first dose produces myocarditis at a much lower rate than the second dose. So, uh, some people have called for only doing one dose of the vaccine for young people versus two doses, uh, the booster, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's really, it's a question of like the uh, the, the benefits versus the harms. And the cl- the case is much closer for young people to say it's not worth it than it is for older people. Older people is definitely worth it.
1: Mm. Mm.
0: So that's a really good point. And just sort of like hearing obviously Kedrick laying the foundation and Dr. Jay, you've obviously um, sort of elaborating on it. Just on a very personal sort of like outlook, and I can't say the same for the states, obviously I've not lived there, the, the way that the um the health administration and the government has been sort of like promoting this vac- these, these vaccines to um to the population, um, albeit great, great job on getting 90%. But even, and I and I won't I won't name names here, but I will say I'll put my hand up as well, the way that the um the vaccine was sort of um encouraged to be to be to be taken or you know get get it injected into you seemed like the messaging from the government and, and the health board was very very not necessarily misleading but it felt like a very forced um sort of like approach and yes, i did get it but on the event that i did get it and I was having a conversation with my wife, i kind of told her like yeah, we we will get it. However, it just feels like it was really being forced upon us um, without sort of the information that was presented. And I did actually have a couple of um, clients and friends who are actually in the, um, who works in the hospitals. And from what I'm gathering, at least, um, very, very sort of like not too exposed to the whole COVID thing, um, from what I'm gathering at least is that the vaccines doesn't necessarily stop the spread. It really just stops the, the side effects of you getting COVID. And um, a lot of the hospital staff here um, were actually forced to leave their jobs because some of them were, you know, refusing to take the vaccines. And a lot of the argument was like, oh, you're in the medical field. You should take the vaccine because you sh- it will help you to stop the spread to, to, you know, people who do come in. And I felt like there was a lot of, it, it just felt like the government really sort of like shredded really, really there was a lot of panic in trying to get the country to 90% so that people don't die, but it doesn't look, uh, Kedrick, I don't know your looks on this as well. It doesn't feel like that they actually presented that information, but it was much more like we need to get in 90% so that we don't spread it. But it's, you know, like, I just felt like the, um, the, the, the way that they were promoting, it was not the best. I'm not too sure if that was the same in the States.
2: No, I, I think the, the, the uh, Western governments and many other governments, actually, and, and certainly New Zealand, um, have done, uh, have, have I think, violated basic medical ethics to get the vaccination rate very high. They've employed coercion rather than persuasion, informed consent in order to get vaccination high. In fact, uh, governments, including uh, Arden's government, has essentially demonized the unvaccinated uh, c- s- sort of. Created essentially treated them as if they're second class citizens, um, and I think that that uh, is going to be uh, that is an enormous public health mistake because what it does is it yeah you get the vaccination rates high, but you'll create a, a population of people that view public health as this coercive force and start rather than a partner in producing good health with the population it's a it's a it's someone on the outside pushing, um, and that kind of distrust will result in distrust of public health, other important recommendations. We're already seeing this in the United States. I think the vaccine hesitancy that we've seen in the United States is unprecedented in my view. I mean, it's always been true that there've been some group of people, relatively small group of people that have doubted the importance of vaccines that are the standard vaccines in the United States. But that group has grown very sharply as a result of the coercive practices of some places. Um, In the United States, they put in these vaccine mandates where, uh, you know, if you don't get vaccinated, you lose your job, right? You can't go to, you can't, uh, you can't enter uh, restaurants, you can't enter libraries, you can't go to museums, you can't go to uh, shows, Um, these vaccine passports, uh, green passes, like uh, what they call them, I guess, in in Europe. Um, So you you have this like incredibly coercive uh, kind of policy, I think. Uh, in order to get the vaccine rate high and based on the premise that you need high vaccine rates in order to stop disease spread that is a that's a, a bad premise because it's based on fall bad science it the disease does the vaccine does not stop disease spread um, and it you can you can, the, this idea that you can ha- get to and and stay at zero covid is a central fallacy uh, that, that we've seen throughout the epidemic. Uh, uh, and I think it plays has played itself out in New Zealand in sort of the its, it's distilled form. Um, and I, I am really scared for the future because I think a, there will be a counter movement to that as a consequence of that coercive public health. Th- that, that coercive public health b- breeds distrust in public health and it will play itself out in distrust of very basic, important public health advice. And uh, I, I and I and I wonder how uh, future governments are going to be able to cope with that because it's going to have negative consequences.
1: Hmm. I I think something that's very important is to be able to provide the information and allowing people to weigh it themselves. Right, make make the choice based on the information available. Um, I I do think when omission of information uh, is present, you know, you, you can either be it. It may I, I don't want to like. I mean, it does seem that like there's a huge element of coercion, but it can also be, uh, under, it's either like from like, oh, you're coercing people or the fact that you feel like people are not smart enough to decide from themselves because all oh, this other information. So I also feel like that's very like paternalistic and undermining uh people's uh, ability to make choices from the, for themselves. I think a very good, and um, people usually have huge pushback against them because uh, you, you're kind of like denigrating their character, you know? And I want to like share an example, like a personal example on like the importance of like sharing information is that my parents, so like I said, they're based in Malaysia and the older generation from like Asian household, you know, we tend to be skeptical about Western medicine, right? Uh, They're like, oh yeah. And then they're usually like tough it out, you know, like parents are from like immigrants, you know, if you get a cold, if you're sick, you're basically weak, you know, you just have to tough it out, right? Uh, And all, all, all that kind of stuff. So initially my parents uh, didn't want to get the vaccine right and they said uh they 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 made a booking and i had to ask my brothers to actually check so my mom actually like i don't know whether intentionally or out of ignorance lied like my brother say that oh she already made her vaccine uh booking right and she didn't you know she didn't want to get the vaccine uh the, the primary dose and my parents are like they're both above 60 so yeah the risk is relatively higher and my, my brother basically said that, okay, cool, if you don't get vaccinated, I'll uh, cancel your Netflix subscription. So my parents, <laughs> in the end, got vaccinated, right? Uh, out of the, I mean, maybe part of it was like, not willingly, but at, at, the, at the point, you know, it's, it's nice sometimes when uh, we grow up and we can like, make our parents do things that they don't want because when you were younger, it was the other way around, but besides the point, but now when it came to boosters, right, I told my parents, you know, I said, cool, these are the, the uh, of, uh, Malaysia, they also got like, uh AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, which is like, comparable to the Johnson and Johnson. And my mom was like afraid of like vid, the blood clotting, but I said, yeah, it happens in younger females. And I tried to like persuade my mom to get the vaccine. Fast forward to the booster rollout. I told my parents, yeah, you know, you're a relatively older population. You know, it makes sense if you get the boosters, you know, uh, but I told them, yeah, my brothers probably probably shouldn't. And then my mom was like, okay, cool. You know, I, I'll listen to you, right? Uh, I'll take your advice. And yeah, they got they got boosted, right? I didn't even have to coerce them at all. You know, so I feel like that, obviously this is N equals one. Uh, and I feel like this kind of like important when you share the information out with people. Uh, people can be more responsive because I'm sure uh, there's uh, data out there showing that uh, resistance to other form of vaccination, uh, not COVID vaccines like measles vaccines and all that have 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 pl- uh, they plummeted. You know because of like skepticism. Because whenever you feel coerced and you uh, and not to mention if you're coerced with like something that's not the full picture. For example, say oh you take the vaccine so that we can go to COVID zero, but clearly. If we are not in a COVID zero world. People be like, "Man, people are lying to me." You know, so I do think that that proper information is very, very important, and it does sometimes feel like uh, certain information is being omitted and conversations are not being had, which I think is like important. Uh particularly, you know, like when even when we talk about boosters, I think Israel, which is like one of the forefront of like vaccine, uh, like studies coming up, they recently came up with a study saying that even the fourth shot might not uh, prevent against. Uh, Omicron infection, right? And things like, yeah, you know, yeah, we're not surprised, you know, we're not surprised, right? And not, not to mention, why are all this like information being omitted and the false premise that everybody should get boosted because if we get boosted, right, uh, that will reduce the cases of Omicron in New Zealand. And sure, there's a there's a point of like protections and if people get less sick, you know, then they won't overwhelm the health system. But I think I've, I've seen data from the state showing that, two doses right uh even population in the 70 plus two doses are still effective 94.5 percent effective against critical illness and if you take three doses it's 98.3 percent so the the increase is so marginal right and obviously if you're older it benefits but for the young people right with myocarditis as well you mentioned uh it's not i think the i think a low a really like high rate of myocarditis uh it's like one in like 1700 myopericarditis and then you have like one in like 7,000 to like 10,000 right so the conversation should be had and I think that for yourself you have been on the forefront of like a lot of like criticism uh and especially from public health officials you know like uh people who don't know you I I don't know what has been happening is like basically you uh uh, Martin Kuldoff and Sunetra Gupta uh you're basically co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration has been like labeled as like fringe right fringe uh fringe scientists and you need like a swift and devastating takedown, right? I think I'm quoting the words word for word and you probably could uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But I do think that the element of conversation regarding specific topics is going to be very important because when something that puzzles me, like when it comes to the university and being someone who is like, when I was younger, I really asked questions of why I like to have conversations about this. There really isn't many like conversations on like, regarding matters of like differing opinions and like there's no debate there's no public forum nobody like that yeah basically there's nothing that happened like oh a university invite this panel of speakers and this panel of speakers and to debate the issue and at the end of the day just stream it free from public for the public everybody's on zoom anyway you know nothing better to do right to watch and then they can make the decision for themselves and i think that that has been sorely lacking if i'm not mistaken you were uh in conversation uh at the start when you had the gbd uh, the great barrington declaration with someone from like the john snow memorandum right at the start so like their their opposing views and i think that that was the only time and then there's probably a couple of others but there, there hasn't been re- really be any conversation around this this whole topic why why do you think mm-hmm. this is so especially you were on the receiving end of like, yeah, cool, right? Uh, this person's like a fringe person, you know. We probably shouldn't listen to him. And the Twitter mob, you know, they get really angry and basically just, yeah, they will. You can gather an army on either sides, right? So, what, what, what do you think? Like, has happened that created such a deep divide?
2: So you, there's a lot in, the, in your question, Kendrick. So let me let me just start with uh, uh, a very brief comment about your, your your parents and you and the vaccine. I, th- I think medical decisions uh especially in asian cultures certainly in my my the culture and the family i grew up with are often family decisions and there's nothing wrong with that um i think that i, I think that personally i think it's a healthy thing like you want to consult your family members uh when you make major health health decisions and and i think ch- children can play a, a, you're not a kid but uh you know but but like you know i i have, I have children that are uh that are, that are uh, uh, on the process of becoming adults. And I, I hope that they'll play some important role in my, in my health in, in coming years. Uh, I, I, but I do think that the, the medical profession owes it to everybody to treat them like they are rational people, to treat them as, 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 as not like children. So uh, to, to tell give people a choice, say, here's, here's what the data show. Here's the, here's the, the, the benefits. And here's the harms and, um, you can make your own decision. That kind of informed consent is incredibly important, uh, and to do it in a culturally appropriate way is, a, is an important thing within medicine. And, uh, and you know, I think I'm glad you you got you convinced your parents to get vaccinated. I think that's a, that's very important for, for for especially for older people. I also agree with your characterization of the booster being. A marginal benefit relative to the first two doses. The first two doses are incredibly important for reducing the risk of severe disease. Um, for some people, actually, the booster makes sense too, right? So, like for older people, it might make more sense for than for younger people. Um, but again, that's a it's a individual decision. I think that's something that that ought to be left to inform that for left to people in consultation with their physicians. Um, okay, so now let's let's tr- turn from that. To, you're, you're, ta- you're, asking, you're, you're telling your, your, your audience about the Great Barrington Declaration and the John Snow Memorandum and the discussion in science around these around uh, dur- during the pandemic. Um, okay, so let me just set the stage a little bit. I think for much of the pandemic, especially the beginning, um, the, there was there was and this continues to be an incredible fear and panic around COVID. The World Health Organization told people there was two, three, four percent mortality from this disease. It Sets people's minds on fire, and that panic led to a huge a, a huge number of policy decisions that were not very well debated. They were just adopted as if they were the logical consequence of the fact that you have this severe disease floating out there. Lockdowns, zero COVID, are among the group that that group, from um, almost from the very earliest days of the pandemic if you were to try to argue against lockdowns, against a zero COVID policy, which by the way is, is epidemiologically impossible when you have disease spread you know, into other mammals, um, uh, you, you, uh, you 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 would be pushed back. The pushback would be devastating and enormous. They would, they would uh, uh, you, you'd get things like, well, you're not an epidemiologist. You're not a virologist. You're saying dangerous things. You, you shouldn't be arguing against public health. Uh, essentially, A a relatively small group of scientists with a narrow set of expertise dominated the discussion and in the name of science itself said, we must do these policies. And any pushback to, to any argument, any dissent around them is dangerous. There was this illusion that all scientists agreed that we must have a lockdown that suppressing the virus to near zero is the only sensible policy. And uh, the mainstream, the media, many governments enforced that illusion of consensus. I, I know in, in, uh, in New Zealand, it was very difficult. You probably haven't heard very many, uh, like you're, 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 you're you're listening to Twitter, but like most people in New Zealand haven't heard what, what I had to say about this. Uh, It just wasn't part of the mainstream narrative. Um, uh, The the Great Barrington Declaration, it's a a document that I wrote with Sunetra Gupta at Oxford University and Martin Kulldorff at Harvard University. Um, uh, uh, It it was a small conference organized at Great Barrington, Massachusetts, by Martin Kulldorff in October 2020. Uh, he invited me and and, and Sunetra uh, in order to compare notes about what the right policy. All three of us had expressed some concern about the policy that we'd adopted. Our, our goal was to present an alternative that could really be followed. In fact, it's the alternative that most countries have now adopted, um, uh, although they don't they won't admit it. Uh, and, and to express concerns about the the lockdowns and mainly to shatter the illusion that there was actually a scientific consensus in favor of lockdown and zero COVID when there really wasn't. I, I mean, I personally knew, Sunetra knew, and Martin knew many scientists who were very concerned about the policies we had followed, but that, that were afraid to speak up. And so we wrote this document proposing a, a strategy of focused protection, protecting the older populations who actually are at the highest risk of disease, while at the same time, uh, lifting lockdowns on younger people who were harmed more by the lockdowns than COVID. And uh, the, the ultimately leading to sort of less har- overall harm and death than a lockdown focused strategy, which you can see is like in the, in the United States has utterly failed, right? 800,000, almost 150,000 people have died from COVID. Lockdowns did not much. Uh, most countries that in, adopted these lockdowns did, didn't succeed with them in, in preventing COVID from taking its death toll. Um, but the goal was to shatter this illusion. Our goal was to shatter the illusion that there was a scientific consensus. Uh, almost immediately after we wrote this, it went viral. A, 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 almost a, a, you know, 800,000 regular people signed it. Tens of thousands of doctors and scientists signed it within days of us releasing it. Maybe you all signed it. I don't know. Um, uh, the the the, um, uh, the 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 document sort of went all around the world, almost like Samistat. It wasn't spread by the media. It was just it was like a viral document that, that, that everyone's like, well, look, uh, it lo- sounds like there are actually scientists who disagree with the current policy. That was our main job. Main, main goal was to start a discussion and debate about how best to protect the vulnerable. Because we saw at least that that, that the the lockdown policies were not protecting the vulnerable. 70, 80% of people dying are people above 65 from COVID in the United States. The lockdown policy was failing the vulnerable. And we saw another lockdown coming. We also saw the lockdown harming younger younger people in in irrecoverable ways. Um, And so we wanted to start a discussion about how best to protect the vulnerable while allowing younger people to live more or less normal lives. Um, instead, what happened was this sort of uh, deplatforming, this, uh, this this like vicious propaganda war to make us look as if we were all, we were fringe. You know, Martin Kulldorff is is one of the people primarily responsible for designing how the FDA, the US FDA, tracks vaccine safety. Sunetra Gupta is 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 a is probably the world's premier epidemiologist you know, it, it, she's at, at Oxford University, you know, and I've worked on infectious disease epidemiology for decades. Um, we're not fringe, I, I've got, I, per, I personally have been funded by the National Institute of Health. Uh, the, The uh, it turns out when I, we learned later that the head of the National Institute of Health in the United States, Francis Collins, and, and Tony Fauci, his, his uh, the head of the National Institute for Infectious, uh, Allergy Infectious Disease in the United States, within four days of us writing this declaration, uh, Organized a campaign to make us look as if we were fringe scientists, to to organize uh, popular media outlets to to marginalize us, and in in generally just rather than engage with us in a, a discussion about the the nature of the policy dis, uh, that we were proposing, to to essentially propagandize it. To say that we, I was in favor of, for instance, letting the virus rip through the population, which was a lie. I'm not in favor of letting the virus rip through the population. I'm in favor of protecting the vulnerable um, it, from from it because that's the right ethical thing to do. Um, and and I think uh, I think th- that it really poisoned the well, right? It, it, the, and the goal was the reason why you saw this furious, and, and then there was this like uh, counter document in the uh, in the Lancet written by. Uh, some very prominent people, including the current U.S. CDC director, uh, arguing that uh, arguing for in favor of lockdowns with false falsehoods, like that 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 natural immunity doesn't happen after COVID recovery. Um, and you know, I, I think what 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 you ended up seeing was this like furious counterattack in order to maintain the illusion that there was a scientific consensus in favor of lockdown. And unfortunately, they won the policy war. They 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 got the lockdowns they wanted in the winter of 2020 and and uh, 2021. I mean, um, and uh, despite that, the COVID spread throughout the Western populations, uh, and, and, in, 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 and and wreaked huge devastation. We've had like wave after wave of COVID despite these lockdowns. So we've had both COVID and the lockdown harms. If we'd had that discussion, an honest discussion about policy in October of 2020 rather than the propaganda war we actually saw I think the world would have been in a much better
0: place. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Just seems it it just seems that um it's interesting because uh, I'm not too sure whether the um New Zealand health officials obviously had a discussion um in regards to how we had a covid over here. But it just seems like over in, a, over in the states at least from 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 what I can gather is that um there's always going to be people trying to push the agenda just because they think they're right um, and not willing to having a discussion, a proper sort of like open discussion in the likelihood that they might actually come out, quote unquote, on the losing end of it. And it it feels like politics these days, especially when it comes to as we've seen over the last couple of years with COVID being you know just running through the world, it seems like politics these days are more about trying to and science to a degree I would say, and it's trying to be the the the, the positive and the front facing I'm the best and in, in, in making the the decision in, in in mainstream media rather than trying to think of what's best for humanity essentially and it seems like ego is uh, a big prevalent thing especially hearing um, your story uh, Dr. J with obviously the policy that you've that you've guys come up um, essentially losing out to someone who might have more poor in the media yeah I
2: mean I think I think uh, you know uh, just to just to like try to elevate this a, a little bit you know if even in science um, it, you don't No, there's no one that no one can really reasonably say that i am the science like that doesn't that is not something that any anyone beyond a narcissist would be able to reason to to reasonably say right no no human is possessed of all scientific truth embodied within him that is just not right Uh, science is a is a process by which people reasonably discuss with each other they have different ideas about the how the how the material world works but you are tempered that discussion with data you ground it in data in testing and logic and you end up with a something approaching uh approaching the truth as a result of it uh some, you know sometimes over a long period of time because it because you know these these problems are challenging and difficult and not obvious um so there's this norm of free and open discussion of people even who might disagree with each other very very vehemently uh but but that kind of of open discussion leads to progress mm in science. Now in public health, the norm is a little bit different, right? So public health has the, the, the it has to communicate with the public in a, in, a, in a clear way. And the message just has to be s- as simple as possible uh, to, to actually have, have an effect. And if there's a, a lot of disagreement among public health people, that clarity gets lost. So there's a norm in public health of n- not having a lot of debate. In public messaging, now you will have a lot of debate among public health people behind closed doors, in in journals or whatnot. But you, but the the messaging is always as clear and as simple and as non contradictory as can be. Um, so, for instance, I tell you the, the public health messaging is smoking is bad for you. And if I if I go around saying smoking is good for you, I've done something. I've committed a sin, right? I've I've have lied. I'm saying telling you something that's going to harm you. Uh, using my authority, that would violate a correct public health norm against that kind of that kind of thing. I would never do that. Now, um, the ethical basis for that kind of messaging in public health, for reducing the amount of discussion in public between public health people, is that there is really a strong scientific consensus in favor of the message that public health is giving. If there is not a strong scientific consensus in favor of what that, then then the public health people are doing something very, very wrong. They've squelched the debate in science in order to present the message that they want to put forward long before their consensus is actually developed within science to justify morally that that, that squelching of debate. Um, and so what's what's happened here is essentially uh, rather than discussing the fact that the scientific evidence was not, the scientists had not come to some conclusion about the wisdom of lockdown, they squelched that debate in order so that they could keep the public health messaging simple as possible, in favor of lockdown. Um, I think they violated a basic ethical norm that underpins the why in public health you would normally be able to give. A unified message. You have to have consensus in science before you are allowed to do that in public health. And they violated that rule.
1: Mm. I also think that something that is like important is to for people to understand what science is, right? So for the most part, we know that science is like descriptive, right? It's not prescriptive, you know. Uh like the philosopher David Hume like famously said there's this is, is odd gap, right? Just because something is doesn't mean you ought to do it, right? And science is like that, right? It describes certain uh, parts of reality but it can't tell you what to do you know because people can obviously adopt unscientific approaches to things you know so it's not necessarily prescriptive and i think that you mentioned a very uh important point of uh having that that debate especially when there's uncertainty you know and we, we, we we've seen we've seen this during the the covid pandemic i think that uh, like you mentioned, the current CDC director, Rochelle Wolinski, right? So she basically, you know, one of the people who was in the Jon Snow memorandum writing against what you've put out, uh, recently said that we sh- should now focus on protecting the vulnerable, you know? I'm like, so, you know, I mean, you, you and your co-authors and whoever that signed the declaration probably felt a little bit uh, vindicated. But I also do think that people also, you have to kind of understand that I saw like some stats online, uh, not sure how accurate it is, but I, I don't think it will it be that far off. Is that trust in public institution uh, prior to the pandemic was already at quite low, like around 40, like less than 50%. And, you know, what has happened now has sown further distrust, you know, and public health will take like a long time to recover, unfortunately, you know, and like you said, the consequences can be uh pretty, pretty devastating. You know, and I, I, i do think that for yourself and your, your your co-authors like out there putting yourself it uh out there is it's quite brave you know i uh it, it is quite crazy because i've seen obviously these are like really uh like extreme stories where people like personally like get threatened you know i mean whether you people like the message from our prime minister or not where on how she implement policies i don't think people should go to the point of like sending letters like oh i'm gonna like Threaten, like send death threats right i think that's just really bad regardless of which side uh of the debate you t- tend to support but yeah i think that you know uh we, we we've come to a point that that the pandemic is not about the virus anymore i when i first got into all of this uh it was during like lockdown and there was an article out there uh written by certain like uh, public health people so like the people that the government consult. In, in a way, you can say there's a New, New Zealand version of uh, Francis Colin Fauci and uh, Wolinski. This is the, the New Zealand version. One of them said that uh, we can't let uh, COVID be endemic because if that happens, we will have thousands of deaths in New Zealand. But that this happened during the Delta wave and vaccination rollout was already there, right? But nothing in the article mentioned. About vaccinating, vaccination, preventing death, and I was like, "Wait, you know, it doesn't take me. You know, I'm not like a virologist. I, I'm not trained medically to, to see that. Isn't this like a contradictory message? Because you want to get people vaccinated, but you fail to mention how vaccination can actually prevent that. And I basically wrote wrote an uh, article and like published it on my Substack because uh, none of the other, one, well, none of the, the outlets wanted to like." publish it i don't know why uh, i don't want to speculate but i just said like it's fear the new pandemic right so like this fear this panic and i think it goes back to what you mentioned at the start of our conversation where people think that the ifr is like really high you know that like, everybody will die and this has caused a lot of problems i think i saw on online where people say like nyc e- emergency hotlines are being overwhelmed because everybody that has like a cold or cough or fever they start calling 911 for emergency because they think they're gonna die of covid I have friends who work in uh Victoria in Melbourne hospital. Uh, he works as a nurse, and they said that they have like Victoria has one of the highest cases of uh a COVID uh, uh outbreaks there. And this he basically told me that people were just too lazy to either like get proper testing, like in like from a PCR test or whatever. They don't want to line up and wait, so they just walk in the hospital because they know the nurses and the staff will not refuse them. And then the hospital just get overcrowded of like free walk-ins, you know, like the message of fear and panic is like, dude, if I don't get tested now, I'm going to die, you know? And definitely there is uh, th- there is some merit for certain people, like for example, like monoclonal antibodies, uh, all of that, you know, early treatment would be great. But like I said, the likelihood of someone who's like 25 getting a, a cold, uh, dying is really, really uh, low. And ironically enough, those people who are 25 are the ones that would rush into the hospital first to get tested. And then, uh, but whereas like the people who's like older, May not even have the physical capability or even like the capacity to go to get tested first, you know. So like, there's this like really big like disproportionate impact, you know. Like I said, the the vulnerable doesn't they don't really get protected, and I think a big part of messaging. I think this is really important as well because you are kind of like uh, you also do work in like economics, and the thing with focus protection is that I think it's so important because. Uh, with a finite amount of resources, you need to channel those resources with the greatest uh, return of investment, right? And unfortunately, resources in this world are finite, right? So, uh, and the thing is that if you lock down the country, lock down the economy, you will not be able to replenish your resources that you're currently channeling into potentially useless and arbitrary uh, policies. And like, I mean, just look at the world now, right? Like, inflation is like everywhere. <laughs> So uh it does speak a lot on like the economical aspect as well. I think New Zealand had like thousands of over businesses deregistered across the two years of the pandemic, right? During the lockdown and uh, like I said, uh, school closure in the States. I also have heard that some teachers telling me that the grades were marked more leniently, right? Uh so the standard is lower. So obviously the quality of education has has went has has dropped as well, which means that Potentially, uh, if this carries on, uh, people who have an equivalent year of education prior to the pandemic versus during the pandemic, right? The quality of education will be lower, right? So, uh, society as a whole progress would be like diminished. So there are like you said multiple, uh, yeah, factors. You know, I. Yeah, I I have a lot of thoughts, yes, you can say, but I don't want to take up too much of time. So, how much time do you have left, roughly?
2: I <laughs> I can go for a little while longer. Um, so let me let me just comment on a couple of things you said. Uh so, so uh a lot of public health in the rollout of the vaccine, they made the mistake of thinking that this vaccine could be used to eradicate COVID. And um as a result, in a very weird way, by overselling the vaccine, they also uh, they they also undersold it. So uh, like the vaccine reduces the mortality rate from COVID very substantially. Uh, but they were afraid that if people got vaccinated, they would start to live their life like normal again. And then COVID would spread, which would contradict their goal of zero COVID. And that actually, I think, led to many people underestimating the importance of the vaccine. It was actually an anti-vax message to say that because so if I get the vaccine and all of a sudden you're telling me I need to have a mask, I have to like social distance, I still have to do everything that they were already telling me to do, a natural response is, well, why do I get the vaccine? What has it done for me? Uh, So I think that 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 and the root of that problem was a confused idea about what the end goal was. The end goal is is it, it could not possibly be zero COVID. No matter what we did, no matter what we did, we were going to end up with COVID being endemic. That is not avoidable. The only question is how do you minimize the harm from the policies and from COVID up uh, until the point that the COVID until the point that COVID is endemic, right? So there's no strategy that leads us away from endemic COVID. That is just the, that was baked into the cake in in March of 2020, February of 2020. It was already too late for the world to not have COVID endemic from the almost the earliest days of when we realized that we were in a pandemic. Um, and so they had these like very strange messages because they got the, the goal wrong. It actually, I think, undermined confidence in the vaccine at a time when it really needed to, needed to like uh, so, sort of booster boost confidence in the vaccine. And they could have done that if they just focused on the thing, the vaccine does so well, which is protect against severe disease. Mm. Um, so I think that, uh, I think that, that, that is uh, uh, something that I think, um, it's it's just a basic lesson. If you have the wrong end goal, you're going to end up with the bad tactics to get there. If you ever play chess, you 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 know you, you 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 see this all the time, right? Uh, you you get you have the wrong idea for a plan, and the, whatever tactics you do end up being useless. Um, you get checkmated. Um, that's essentially what's happened with public health. It didn't it didn't understand really what was possible. Um, the 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 end. So uh, and I think uh, now we're uh, we're finally gotten to the point where I think most countries realize that endemicity is, is, is gonna happen no matter what we do. And they're starting to realize that you that, 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 the, that the harms, like I think the UK just opened up today, said that they were lifting almost all COVID restrictions. Um, the, unfortunately, I think Australia and New Zealand is still not quite there. Uh, New Zealand, I think, still has a, a hard road ahead to get there. Uh, Australia, we're, we're, you're seeing the cases just explode. Uh, I, I think we're in a position where I think we're going to start to see some changes in Australian policy as they as they realize they can't stop COVID from spreading everywhere, um, and then there are going to be hard, hard discussions about what was done in the name of COVID control and why it was done.
0: Mm. And I think it's I think it's um it's always that that whole uh, play on 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 fear, and I think this this will I guess traverse from sort of like continent country to country we, we obviously saw that in, in in china where you know the case is spiked obviously that's where claims to be originated from um and and everyone did something there it went over to europe and the states it spiked other countries saw this and said oh we're gonna protect ourselves and shield ourselves away from 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 everyone else new zealand australia and i think it's kind of that I, I do feel, and, and I'm kind of a little bit worried as well, potentially, I think, for, for Australia and New Zealand particularly, um, as I've kind of had a a lot of conversations with with friends who who are in Canada and in the States, um, they, well, you guys are essentially in a position, yeah, as much as uh, how to put this, living with COVID essentially. But over here in New Zealand and Australia, it seems like we haven't, got that message it seems like that the public hasn't really accepted the fact that um we we need to live by it and i can so, only so, you know,
2: i tell you like the problem is like your government has lied to you right <laughs> the government has has spread the idea and it's used the the, the 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 levers of power including the mainstream media to spread that that lie that you w- would be able to maintain zero COVID forever yeah
0: yeah, that's and I not, can only yeah, not. and I can only imagine like the fear when you know like the media starts posting, we go from a hundred cases to a thousand cases overnight, um, and that's basically what happened with that second lockdown, right, Kendrick? It was um, yeah, it's it's funny because both of us we flew down we flew somewhere else for you for a, for meet for a competition, and the day of, how ironic, the case went from like two or three, and all of a sudden the media is like two hundred cases in a day, and everything started closing down like. Come on, like we knew this was going to happen, but clearly, that the government hasn't psychologically prepped the people for this. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. the government should have well, done quite, much quite job. the
2: opposite, right? Quite the opposite. Yeah. They've they've instilled fear, like un, so un, un, fear. unreasonable yeah. fear of COVID. Uh, I mean, the right thing to do is tell people the truth, right? There, there are groups of people that are really vulnerable if they were to get COVID, the uh, older people, and give those older people tools to try to, to be protected from community spread when it happens. Um, and those those tools could have been, you know, there's lots of things you could do like to better protect nursing homes, you know, like a, a good high quality masks, testing for people that come in, changes in how like staff rotate in and out of nursing homes. You can even made nursing homes into places where staff actually just, that's where they they, they live for a month. So you, you reduce the amount of like people, the traffic in and out of nursing homes. That's where like 40% of the deaths are in the United States and else in many other places. Um, they could have done all kinds of things to try to protect the vulnerable. Uh, I mean, I, on the other hand, I mean, I just like, it's, you know, if you're going to say like, uh, evaluate the, the, the New Zealand policy fairly, it, it did work, right? Because of the vaccines, it worked. Older people, there are going to be fewer older people dead of COVID as a consequence of the New Zealand policy. Because the vaccines were developed, but it is coming at a very high cost to New Zealand in terms of the the, the lives of of, uh, of the of the young people there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: I, yeah, I think the big thing, right, is so important is how people treat one another. You know, I, I remember this uh, story. So we we have had uh, three lockdowns in total. Uh, the second one was like very very short, like briefly, like just two weeks. You know, because we had like so we had like a some community case and the first instinct is always to lock down, uh, unfortunately. And what happened was I was uh, in a different like city, right? And they always locked down Auckland first because that's where we are, right? The big city, right? Auckland. And that's where the spread usually happens. So I was in a big city, uh, in a different city, right? Uh, up in the mountain, close to the mountains. And then they announced a lockdown, which means I had to travel back, right? So everybody had to travel into Auckland and there was this massive like jam, right? The jam was like long and then I said cool i was with my friend and i was like cool there's this ice cream sh- stop here uh there's this ice cream stop here you know let's get some ice cream just chill for a bit let's wait for the jam to subside and we go back you know then i went there there was this like lady she was having ice cream and then she asked oh where are you from that's said, oh we're from Auckland.' immediately she took like three steps back or like try to distance herself away from herself like dude like <laughs> i'm not gonna spread COVID to you you know like and this is how like people treat one another and it's just." because they are so fearful so sometimes I don't really like blame them because if like if you think that if like you know in the olden days you have like leprosy you know where they like basically like isolate the lepers from the like general population you know and if I touch you you're gonna die right Uh, sure you'll be fearful you you will fear for your life but like I said the actual harm towards most people is actually marginal you know and I'm also really concerned on how things will happen I think about like you know you mentioned masking uh, masking in kids, right? Besides the learning disabilities that might happen, uh, I'm also thinking of like how parents would tell their kids, "Oh, if you your friend doesn't mask, you can't play with him," you know. And the thing with kids is that kids would pick on kids. If you have everybody in in the class that masks and one guy that doesn't, right? Or let's just say his parents think that they don't need to mask. People will, like isolate that kid and like. I
2: think th- I think what you what you said is really important, right? So there's this like it's almost, I mean, I, I, for want of a better term, it's like a spiritual effect, right? We, uh, when we, when we're like made to be in community with one another, like humans, we're not meant to be isolated, separated, fearful of one another. Um, we, when we, when we interact with each other, we should interact with each other as fellow human beings that, that, that we learn from that we, that, 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 that we, that we treat with respect and love. Um, what, what the, COVID policies have done is it's trained people to think of each other as simply bags of germs to be avoided, sources of infection and contagion to one another. Uh and a society cannot function like that. A society, a society cannot function when everybody thinks of each other as just some uh, a source of harm for each for for us rather than a, rather than a source of of, of uh of enrichment and, and uh and love and i think uh i think the um it, that is going to be that's a, that's sort of an underplayed damage of the lockdowns um, that will last a long time. I think I, I, I don't I don't I don't know how you get out of it uh, when we spent the better part of two years reinforcing that message over and over again. Um, I think pe- humans are built with this like we have this like built into us this like almost evolutionarily this this fear of infectious disease. Many Western countries have, have conquered it for decades. Um, and so when COVID arrived, this this like this like lizard brain center of our, our took over for so many people, and governments reinforced it so that we 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 were so scared of, of contagion, we started treating each other much less well than we ought to have. Uh, and I agree with the, the the harms of the masking children. I, I don't really understand how you can look at uh, if you're a disabled child. Uh, you know, like I've, I've heard from many, many parents of, of autistic kids being forced to wear masks every day is very difficult. Or deaf kids that that need to be able to read lips in order to be able to learn to learn to, to communicate. Um, you know, how do you do that in a mask environment? How do you teach a kid to read when the when the when the teacher is you know the five year old is learning from a teacher who's masked up and you have to you have to look at the expressions on the face. A lot of that is 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 quite important in social and emotional development for kids um to, to pretend like that, that 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 that's a costless thing i don't really doesn't make any sense to me
1: yeah not, mm. not not to mention like the actual impact on kids itself is uh not not as high right so just something like anecdotal in new zealand um we we have like some outbreaks right and we, a lot of like cases happen in school but i don't think a school has ever been a super spreader event right uh prior to omicron at least right because you know that uh, there's multiple reasons why kids don't really like they're not like good vectors of transmission but the super spreader events itself uh were not from schools you know they usually happen with like uh events where they're actually adults in it you know so i do think that like i said the policy like this impacts people differently and i there there should be some form of like individualization on how you handle matters and the thing with mandates is that without mandates right i'm not saying that you can't mask you know if you want you can make a choice to triple mask wear a mask wear a face shield wear a hazmat suit if you want right if you want to dress up like it's halloween every day go ahead you know uh but with mandates you literally don't have the choice whatever you know so i think that that is uh the thing my i I spoke to people about mandates and say i think my problem with mandates is that um health right should be individualized you know like chung and myself we both work with nutrition and we like uh we, we we talk to people who have like different nutrition requirements and we individualize the nutrition for them health is the same manner but a mandate literally said you can only do this one thing and it's not individualized at, at all now i don't know i hope like when it comes to boosters right i know uh like i know stanford for example john Hop- hopkins uh they all started manda- mandating boosters for uh like College students, right? I hope that it doesn't reach this point in uh New Zealand. Because, like you said, the effect, even the increase of severe illness is so marginal for even people who are more vulnerable, right? It's like three, four percent. It's gonna be less in people who are young and healthy, right? Uh, not to mention uh that if they already have your primary uh series, right, which I assume most of us would already have here, uh the there is the risk that you have to outweigh, you know, like for example, you know, uh, I think the things that Paul Offit, who basically created the rotavirus vaccine in the US, uh, he's like one of the most like pro vaccine advocate. He also said that, I know there's some pushback within child vaccination, but I think Paul Offit said that, cool, right? We need to like, I think vaccinating child, like children, even though the data set is not high, because in the trial for Pfizer, five to 11, they have a small sample size of like a couple thousand people. So uh, he said that, I think that the 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 benefit outweigh the risk that's up for debate but it does show that he's leaning more towards a pro-vaccine side rather than not Said that he didn't recommend his 20-year-old son to get uh, the booster shot right and so it's going to be very individualized and until you have the conversation i uh, on individualizing uh healthcare uh for people i i think you go you're, you go down a really slippery slope what if you come back like three years from now and let's just say uh like I hope it doesn't happen, but like a lot of people were affected by like myocarditis, right? Especially in New Zealand, where transmission is really, really low. You know, it's very different where uh, in a high transmission uh, setting. The higher the transmission is, obviously, there's likelihood of you getting infected. That's high, but if your transmission is really low, uh, you you probably don't need it. Uh, like a really good example would be my friend. So my friend is in China, and he's not vaccinated at all. Because he said I don't need to, because the Chinese government has a zero COVID policy. So if there's any outbreak, the government will just have draconian measures and lock the whole city down. And I'm fine, you know, like I don't really get affected because the transmission rate is almost like nothing. So he he lives in China. He tells me that I don't need to get vaccinated uh, because of this reason. And obviously it's a young male, so it's like yeah, cool. You know, if I don't need it, why should I take it, right? So it's gonna be very different. And you you apply that to young males as well. Now that if they are recommending uh, boosters for it everyone, right? For say, everybody should get boosted after four months is up, right? Uh, the thing is that we know that if you space out your doses, the likelihood of myocarditis is actually lower, right? So, uh, but now we say everybody should get boosted, right? And the next step is like, oh, cool, if, if everybody is boosted, this is definitely a slippery slope, but why not mandate boosting, well, you know? You well,
2: know, the, thing, the thing is, is like uh, uh, w- there are vaccines that are mandated in many places, childhood vaccines. Um, the The... Many of those vaccines, there's a few things about them that are quite different than the COVID vaccine. So one is that, uh, like for, for children, for instance, the vaccines provide strong protect the protect protection against diseases that are really deadly for children. Right? Measles is a deadly disease for children. Mumps is a deadly disease for children. There's, these are diseases that are really harmful to children to get them. Polio is disabling and deadly for children. Right? So those vaccines, um, if you mandate it for children, are are Providing a very strong private benefit for the children, it also provides a very strong public benefit. Right, if you get the the uh, the DPT vaccine, you're not going to spread uh, you know diphtheria, you're not going to spread pertussis if it happens to ever come up in your you uh, spread in your region. Um, so they're 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 st- they're neutralizing, sterilizing vaccines that that prevent both protect both the person that's being vaccinated and others. Um, and and there you have some some uh, justification for mandating it. Uh, the other thing about those vaccines is they've been, in a, they've been used for decades. Like, we have a lot of experience with them. Uh, there's much less uncertainty about their safety profiles than there is with this vaccine, because with this vaccine, we've only been using it for a year. Um, to mandate a vaccine like this in this setting, when you have so, such short duration of experience with it at population scale, it just invites disaster. Right. It invites groups of people that are going to be that will some people people will be harmed and they're going to they're going to they're going to create a vaccine resistance movement that didn't exist before. And that's I think what we've seen as a result. It was it was just so short sighted. For people, uh, including Paul Offit, I think has said it, it, it argued in favor of the vaccine mandates in this context for COVID. Um, it was just short sighted, I think, to have that uh, that support from public health for this kind of these kinds of coercive policies. I think it will harm public health and already has harmed public health um, as a consequence of, of pe- the population saying, "Well, wh- well, I don't. I mean, I'm not sure. You haven't convinced me yet." Our job as Public health professionals, or as, as scientists, is to is to help convince people, give people the evidence, and then then help people make the right decision, not to force them or coerce them. That itself creates distrust, and I don't really understand how it is that others, many other people, and prominent people in public health, don't see this. It's it's that it's as if uh, they again have been so focused on COVID that they lost sight of all else in their life, and in, in 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 public health, in the, in the life of public health.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's always going to be a slippery slope, especially when um. The, you know, public health sort of like puts it like, we are not mandating vaccines. However, and, and then and they start to have like a huge list of things that you can't do. Or it yeah, makes there's coercive course policies. It's like, it makes it so hard. Like um, last week, I, I just got on a plane and went for a bit of holiday and came back. And, you know, in New Zealand, at least it was, you, you either need to have your vaccine pass uploaded um so that you can get on a plane or you have to get a test 24 hours before your flight. Now, in my head, it's like getting a vaccine pass is so much easier. It's it's convenient. Yeah. And it's like we're not mandating it. However, the, the way that it, it seems like public health, the way that they frame it is that they're trying to avoid the use of mandates, but the way that they are framing it to the public. Um, like you said, uh, doctor, it's just, it's just causing so much distrust, and and um, it's just going to be a slippery slope, especially when they start to do things like you need to be mandated to do this. Um, appar- uh, apparently, like um, this um, just a couple of hours before we started this this recording, um, apparently they they said at least in New Zealand, like if ever there was an Omicron case, they will move. The entire country back into the highest level. Um, it, it's um, and it's just going to cause so much distrust because when we were at the higher level, so much stuff has already happened, like bad stuff, and people are going to be even more resistant to the, to that change. Um, and it's just it's just very concerning that they're using fear and the play on words in order to force you, basically, just force your hand without you uttering the words that we are being mandated for yeah I, it's, PC it's, it's such a you know?
2: <laughs> like everyone everyone sees through that right like if exactly. your if your job if your schooling if your ability to like participate in the social life of the country is premised on the vaccination in what sense is it voluntary it's so, not. Yeah. It's and so like I don't. I don't. I mean that's just a, that's just nonsense, right? So you that that that's that that kind of coercion has a, a very 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 limited place in public health, and certainly not in the population population scale that that has been used in this setting in COVID.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think a large part. So just to clarify that, like the highest level. So in New Zealand, we have something called like they call it the traffic light system. So it's like a tiered system. Red is like the highest level. Orange is. Um, like mid-tier and Indian. then green is where uh like uh, basically like transmission is low. So right now most of New Zealand uh is in orange. And in in the event of there's an Omicron case, they will go to red. Unfortunately, like the thing with the policies are like this traffic light system only affects people who are not vaccinated. And we know right that for Omicron, whether you're vaccinated or not, it doesn't matter, you still spread it, which means that you are essentially still marginalizing the unvaccinated group by going through the systems you know like it doesn't matter because i would say the big difference and chung would probably agree is that between is the size of the gatherings right so rate, you are limited to 100 people uh, who are vaccinated we also have size gathering limitation even though you are fully vaccinated so at rate, only 100 vaccinated people can be in a venue which means you can't have like music festivals so essentially the difference is that vaccinated people uh, the difference between the tiers is that uh, it's the same for the vaccinated people except you can go for music festivals whereas the people who are unvaccinated mm. yeah you have you can only get essentials right so the thing is that's so unfortunate that even this restriction which i don't really which i don't agree with it's not based on the current science because omicron affects people who are vaccinated or not right and there are some there's some countries like denmark right uh, i think like uh one of the countries in the UK, I can't remember whether it's uh, Scotland or Wales, um, uh, Israel, Iceland, they show that even people who are boosted have similar rates of infection per one, 100,000, right? So I'm, it's not like the absolute number because people say, oh, it's like the absolute number, but per 100,000. So it's like, cool, you know, it probably doesn't matter. And people has called Omicron like the great equalizer, meaning everybody can get it regardless of vaccination status, but yet they are still trying to like marginalize this small group of people who are unvaccinated. And it is but it quite- also,
2: that was true for Delta too. Like any, like a lot of vaccinated people got Delta. I mean, I I got, I was vaccinated. I got Delta. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like I, it it makes absolutely no sense, Kendrick. Why are would you treat unvaccinated people as second-class citizens as if they're pariahs, uh, unclean, when in fact, everyone can spread the disease, both mm-hmm. vaccinated and unvaccinated, mm-hmm. even if, even if it wasn't true, is it really right for a government that's committed to liberal democracy, to human rights, to, to carve out a group of people, label them essentially a second-class citizens and treat them as if they were social pariahs. That is wrong. Even if it were true that the vaccinated don't spread the disease. Um, that, that, I think it's just, I think uh, a lot of governments have just forgotten themselves. Like what is the, what, what does liberal democracy mean? If, I, you know, if, if I'm an expat and I can't come home to bury my dad or something, right? I mean, the lot like the, that, that's happened in Australia. I think it's happened also in New Zealand. Um, but you just, you can't actually, what does citizenship even mean if that's, if, if you're going to be treated like that, uh, insiders, outsiders that, that we've created throughout the pandemic, these, like, these sort of like outgroups, you know, like mass, unmasked, the unmasked or unclean right? Did you get COVID? Where'd you get it from? You got COVID. I never got COVID. I'm good because I, I follow the rules. You didn't follow the rules. Vaccinated, unvaccinated, boosted, unboosted. All of these are just essentially tactics that ought not be used by democratic governments, where you create an outgroup that become the source of public public hate, public distrust, public uh you know public repugnance. Um it's it was it's 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 uh it has consequences uh for the trust in government it has consequences for the social fabric that are very hard to undo.
1: Yeah. Mm. I, I think like say politics plays a big role uh unfortunately like I think the big quest the big thing in the politics in the states is that what happens if everything that uh is currently being done was actually said by Trump. You know, we people react differently. So that's a big thing. I think New Zealand is like that in a similar extent and I don't I don't think we will go into lockdowns, right? Because of this reason is that elections is in 2023. So if we go into lockdown, right. And Auckland would definitely be the, 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 the city that goes into lockdown and a huge chunk of voters would probably right. Swing not, to the other yeah, end. They, they will swing. <laughs> so that's why they are like, they didn't like immediately lockdown, uh, uh, because when we had Omicron, so when Delta came, we had one Delta case and we went to lockdown immediately, one in the community, right? But Omicron, I think they are a little bit more hesitant because of elections. But I also do think that you, you do see a certain like percentage, right? So I'm not trying to, I might, this might be complete speculation. So this is not fact, right? That you see that, cool, you have X amount of people, right? Agreeing with me, right? And uh, therefore, if I, Basically, I'm a saint to them. You know, I preserve the lives of uh, x amount of uh, this many people. I preserve, I prevent deaths and all like. But most of the facts, like yeah, cool. You just got you New Zealand, you 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 did that right. So it not really yeah. You had some luck, right? But you know that you have x amount of people that likes this. So I'm just gonna continue with this to appeal to that, and hopefully, if I keep appealing to them, I'll get voted in during the next election. All right. Unfortunately, that I feel might be an uh, a thing. Because you know, at the end of the day, unfortunately, uh, people will say like you know, uh, signs like the truth and politics it's like oil and water. Unfortunately, uh, and this is what, what we see. So this is like pure speculation, and I do think it it, it has like, like you said, dev- devastating effects. Uh, pe- the social fabric would people are very tribal in nature. If you read like like work from Jonathan Hyde, I think a big poem, uh, a poem he quoted in his book saying that "me against my brother." My brother against my cousin. Me, my brother, and my cousin against strangers. Right, so we always find ourselves to kind of like target the out groups, and by actually labeling people with exact like labels, it's so much easier to target the out groups. You know, uh, I think um, like like I said, boosted, unboosted, vaccinated. How many doses you are? You know, you we wear it as a we wear like as a badge, right? So un- unfortunately, like this, this is like these are the devastating effects of just poor policies and it does uh sort sort of like extend beyond just cool does this person get the disease or not, or not. right and it, it has like evolved into something uh, uh yeah it's like know.
2: it's, um, it's uh, like getting the disease is a more moral sin you 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 haven't been careful enough uh, yeah, you mm-hmm. know your social pariah because you got sick um it's it's disgusting like that 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 kind of politics it has no place in, in liberal democracy. Um, yeah. And I should think treat people yeah. who are sick with compassion and care, not, not, uh, not demonize them for. Yeah. For, yeah.
0: yeah. And it, I, I think a lot of this also kind of stems from, um, and I, I'm sure that this rabbit hole will continue on for days, you know, we can go down so many tangents, but I think it also stems a lot from, you know, how the older generation gets information about COVID and it's like, it's, It's fatal to me and they start to, you know, I've got a couple of friends, again, I could put names here in Malaysia where where, when COVID was very, very high, um, basically their their parents and grandparents kind of told them like, don't come and visit me, you know, because Hmm. I, I don't want to get COVID and die. It is it is it is so demoralizing because you know as obviously as a a younger individual you kind of want to spend time with your elderly.
2: I mean that's and unfortunately that's not just older people. Like a lot of uh, the 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 misperceptions about COVID risks are universal. Like people people vastly overestimate the 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 death rate from COVID, um, especially even young people uh overestimate the 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 the, the rates of like you know long covid they overestimate the rates of death from covid hospitalizations even for themselves um and uh it's it's that fear that's led to so much of the 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 pathologies we've been discussing yeah um
1: yeah so i think like just to to close things up i think you know like the world is i mean these are outliers right so i don't want to think that the I don't want to paint a picture that holds like that, but I've heard like in the States, uh, a parent like locked their kid in the trunk because the, like, they, they they suspected the kid has like COVID and they the parent didn't want to get infected. I'm like, since when do we come to the point where a parent who should be taking care of their child actually locked their kid in the trunk? Like that to me is just like absolutely like preposterous. No, it's, you know? I mean,
2: I, I almost feel, I mean, I do so. I feel sorry for the kid, obviously, but also for the parent like the, the mind is so filled with fear. It's not even their fault. It's the fault of public health. It's the fault of governments for, for men, like creating this panic and fear. Instead, I mean, like the right tool, the right way to deal with a pandemic is always to provide uh, a calm, public health should be always providing a calming influence, mm. helping the public deal with the, the, the fear that would might come naturally, not stoking it, um, mm. and then and then providing tools to protect the vulnerable. That's how we've dealt with with uh, every pandemic for the last hundred years has involved some variation of that focus protection strategy, the strategy of 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 keeping society going while trying to protect the vulnerable, not spreading panic, spreading instead p- conveying calm. And we have just tossed that 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 pandemic playbook aside in during this pandemic for no good reason and to disastrous effect.
1: Yeah i think uh so i i think just to close it up to end it like what obviously like for yourself like chung myself we do want to see things improve from here on out you know We, uh, we may be skeptical so what to end it like what is a message you will send like to all our listeners out there you know uh what how can how can they think about like COVID? you know and hope so that well, I th- we can th- hope I think, that the world will progress to a better place in a way. Yeah, you know, I think
2: the 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 response, the failed response to COVID, the disastrous responses we've seen to COVID around the world, actually presents a huge opportunity to to reform science, to reform public health, and to reform the relationships between governments and people. Um, I think uh, uh, if we are honest about what what has gone wrong. We will have the chance to uh, to try to start to try to make things right, not only just to do better in the next pandemic, but also to to like you know I think there were there the COVID revealed a lot of pathologies that were that predate COVID in how governments work, in how science functions, how public health functions. Um, And those are opportunities. Those are those. Now we have an opportunity. Now we see clearly how poorly those those systems function to to try to reform them. Um, As long as we can honestly discuss with each other what what, has happened. There are interests. There'll be people who have very strong interest in trying to maintain that they did everything right. Um, You know, the governments that are are responsible for this, public health officials are responsible for this. And we have we the people have to hold them responsible uh, so that we can have an honest assessment and then and then actually fix things for the future
0: mm. cool so as we usually come to the end of our episodes we generally always ask uh, our guest uh daughter about so the title of the podcast is taking it back to square quant to play in words because both of us have the same last name however we are completely not related at all um so i guess my question for you daughter is knowing what you know now seeing that we've gone through a couple years through the pandemic few years, knowing what you know now, taking it back to square one, what would be the policy or the structure for the world to move forward when COVID have hit, knowing what you know now?
2: I mean, the the right policy would have been um, focus protection, right? We knew from the earliest days of the pandemic, it was older people that were really at risk. We should have moved heaven and earth to to structure structure our, our 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 pandemic response to protect the older population who was at most risk and, and at the same time we should have worked very hard so that we could give tools to younger people so that they could live lives as normally as possible given that there was a pandemic raging Right. So that, that that would have involved a lot of disruptions, but not nearly the level of disruption we saw we've seen and would have been much more effective in, in stopping um, protecting older people, I think. Um, I think that that template of, and that at the same time, we, sh- we should do what we, there are some like some good things that have happened that we should have we should have done. And I'm glad we did. Like the development of the vaccines is a, is a fantastic example of of a huge success. In, in such a short time, um, we we also should have invested in the development of early treatment, the development testing of early treatment. That was has been a major failure actually during the pandemic. Uh, to it, we we had, in fact, a demonization of early treatment that should never have happened. And somehow, like people in public health have treated the possibility of public uh, early treatment as, as a as a bad thing, which is astonishing to me. Um, so I think that kind of template mobilize the scientific community to develop treatments and vaccines, uh, uh, epidemiological public health perspective, protect the vulnerable, and then convey calm and provide tools for the rest of the population to keep society functioning as well as it possibly can in in that context. That's the template that will work with, not just with COVID, but with almost any any infectious uh, disease
0: pandemic. Well, you hear it here first, folks. Well, this has been a great episode. I don't know about you, Kidrick, but uh, I've took a lot from it and it's been a great, I don't know how long we've gone for, but I think first and foremost, thank you, Dr. J uh, for actually spending, taking a time out of, uh, I'm sure a very, very busy schedule already to come and talk to both of us. Um, Usually we ask this off, I guess, where would people find you? But I'm sure as you might've picked up at the start, Twitter seems to be the place. <laughs> yeah, I've been
2: I've been pretty active on Twitter since September. Uh, so it's it's kind of a new environment for you, but it's, it's, it's a nice communication tool.
0: Yeah, there you go, guys. Well, hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. If you liked it, uh, give the episode a like, thumbs up. If you're watching on the YouTube, share it um, to people who think might benefit from this and we will catch you in the next one.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Good luck, you all. Bye now.
0: Yep.